Lord God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity and privilege to gather together to worship you this morning, this Sabbath morning. And Lord, you know the burden on my heart, the message that you have given me to give. And Lord, I pray only that the words that I speak would be useful towards illuminating these topics in the minds of this congregation. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to be upon each and every heart, to be receptive, to be engaged, and most of all, to embrace the, the, the message that you have for us this day. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Now, we turned off the lights because we thought the slides would be easier to see. Um, does it feel too dark, or are we okay? Are we good? Now, this is Sabbath school. So, in Sabbath school, I think in contrast to what, my, what one might consider for the divine worship service, it tends to be a little bit more interactive. And I'd love for this to be very interactive. I'd love for you to ask questions. I'd love for you to... Uh, Really participate. This is a Sabbath school class. Thank you for special music. Thank you very much. And so, uh, would, would that be agreeable to you, to participate and to ask questions as we go? Amen. Amen. And what we'll do is, because we do want to manage the time, and we have a lot to go through this morning, this is part one, part two will be in the afternoon, is some of your questions I'll answer right on the spot. Some of your questions... I'll say, hey, wait till the afternoon or, or later in the, in the materials and we'll answer that questions. And some of the questions I might say, hey, come approach me later. But regardless, please just ask questions and let's keep this very interactive. So with that, the title of my talk is Witnessing to the Wealthy, Worldly, and Well-Educated, or, or as I call them, the W3. And these are ors, not ands. You, you don't have to be wealthy and worldly and well-educated. You just have to be one out of the three to fall into this group. And it's really uh, more of a mindset, frankly, than a demographic. It's a little bit hard to define. We're going to try to define it a little bit uh, in, the, in the next hour. But it's really a mindset about worldliness and secularism and a, a world that is paying attention to things other than the things of God. Does anyone here know someone who fits that description? Just raise your hand if you know someone who you would consider wealthy, worldly, or well-educated. Okay. Most of us do. Some of us don't. And, um, but perhaps by the end of this seminar, you'll realize that you actually do. <laughs> At a minimum, you're here on a university campus. That makes you well-educated. So everyone should have raised their hands. <laughs> Unless you're one of those people masquerading as a student just for the uh, uh, free food. All right. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the need. Emergency landing was my talk last night, uh, a little testimony about something that happened. Sounds like most of you were here. Uh, in the next session here, we're going to talk about my, my full testimony and, and how I came to have this heart conversion that Alistair referred to. And then this afternoon, we'll talk about the method of how you reach the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. Starting with the first W, the wealthy. You can define this in a lot of ways, but just to give us an idea, I've defined it as uh, the top 
of the population of the United States, which roughly gives you a six-figure household income above $100,000. And that's about 20%, that's about 60 million people. Just to give you an idea, 60 million people is this uh, equivalent, roughly equivalent to the entire size of uh, Great Britain, of France, of Italy. And so as a, as a mission field, as a people group, this uh, wealthy segment is literally the equivalent of an entire medium-sized country. This is a large mission field. And although it's top 20% of this country, it's only 7% of Seventh-day Adventists. And so we're outnumbered by almost triple, three to one. So in other words, for every three wealthy and worldly and well-educated, there's only, or actually, for every three wealthy in this country, by this definition, there's only one Seventh-day Adventist. And as you go up into the uh, higher income and wealth brackets, it, 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 the outnumbering uh, gets even more dramatic. So this, that's the wealthy. The worldly, you, you can see these covers of magazines that I've, I've put here just to give you a sense. It's hard to define worldliness as a demographic segment, but it's a mindset. It's a mindset around materialism, around acquisition, around accumulation, around lust, around all of these things, around pleasure, um, around intellectualism. We have the New Yorker magazine here, well known as a very intellectual magazine. And intellectualism, I'm not against being intellectual or being well-educated, but our intellects can become a god in and of themselves. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about worldliness. And then we have the well-educated. I have a graph here, uh, a bar graph, of educational attainment over the age of 25. So kids are not in this graph. And so what you can see here is roughly 42% of the United States has uh, a bachelor's degree or greater. About 42%. Now, the Adventist church this percentage of 42%, do you think Adventists are higher or lower in terms of educational attainment? Higher. Oh, good guess. You, how did you know that? <laughs> did you hear my seminar before? <laughs> indeed, indeed, uh, it is higher for Seventh-day Adventists, a little bit higher. For Seventh-day Adventists, it's about uh, 45%, so it's slightly higher. Now, what's interesting about this is we saw the earlier number on how the wealthy is underrepresented among Seventh-day Adventists. Do you remember that? But educationally, we're actually overrepresented. And any demographer worth their credential will tell you that education and wealth go together. In other words, the more educated you are, the more wealth you have. Now, here we have a little bit of a, uh, a mystery. We are more educated than average, but we're less, less wealthy as a people. Now, why might that be? Any ideas on that? Sorry? I can't hear. Yeah, so there's a lot, there's, there's a selection, mix, uh, career selection mix here. We go work for the church. A lot, a lot of people go into ministry. Uh, and education might be another one. So there's a career mix element here, which I thought was uh, interesting. 
because my, my mental model for Seventh-day Adventists is uh, doctors and dentists and healthcare professionals of various sorts, which tend to be fairly well compensated. But actually, we, we skew, although there is that, that skew, there's an equal skew that goes towards ministerial or missionary type work, which is uh, lower, lower income. There's one other reason. What might that be? Any guess? Yes, ma'am. Well, tithing is actually, so tithing comes out of your income, but your top-line income is still your top-line income, if that makes sense. Now, it, now if the question was discretionary income or, or, or savings rate or something like that, then that would definitely play in. Any other guesses? Educated guesses? Yes, sir. Um, well, Sabbath issue probably comes in with the career mix, the career choice mix element. So I'm not sure whether that actually washes out, but it's a good guess. Good guess. Yes, sir, in the back. So I think that's a very good point. And, and I think that could very well be the case. That would be my anecdotal experience as well, is that a lot of people who uh, attain, ver uh, attain affluence or, or wealth will also tend to leave the church. And I think that's a very real issue. Part of what the Nicodemus Society, which is the, mission, uh, the ministry that, I'm start, that I've started, is all about. Uh, so, so that's a great, great comment there. There's one other thing. Could it be because a wealthy give to the mission? Well, that, that would be similar to tithe, where it comes out of your income. Out of your income. But the top-line income is still what it is. All right, well, I'll, I'll, I won't hold you in suspense. The other one is age. In other words, retirement. Because if you think about income generation, uh, even if you're very well prepared for retirement, at, I work at Vanguard, which is a, a, a large mutual fund investment retirement company. And we, we think of, you can think of retirement or prepare, preparation for retirement in two simple ways. One is the accumulation phase, and that's when you're working when you're accumulating savings to save for retirement. And then you have the decumulation phase, when you're retired and you're now spending to fund your retirement. And our church skews older towards more retired folks. And so you have more people who are in their decumulation phase, not in their peak earning years, which you could argue would be the 40s and 50s, would be the peak earning years of one's lifespan. And so we have uh, an age skew in our church, which is leading to higher education but lower incomes as a contributing factor. And it's interesting because the point that uh, this gentleman made uh, plays into that. Because if our, if our people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are in their peak earning years are leaving the church or become less committed to church, well, then you can see how this would play out. And you can see how that is damaging to the church. So I praise the Lord that at a place like this, at Southern, that you can have a large group of young people. But uh, out in, out, outside of the bubble where I come from, there are very few churches where you might find a concentration of young people like this. And you often see a little bit of a, a U-shape where you have children and you have older folks but then there's this you in the middle where we're missing a generation. 
So that's a real problem for our church. Uh, W3s are very difficult to reach. They're very difficult to reach. And I think we know this, um, I think we know this uh, intuitively. But I'd also like to look at what the Bible has to say about that. So, if we could, let's turn to Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 to 10. When you get there, please say amen. All right. Anyone need mercy? Have mercy. Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. I'll go ahead and read that. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. This is a very common, well-known verse, is it not? And it's saying that the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, the judgment, all the things of God are sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. Well, let's turn to Proverbs 27, verse 7. Just over one book, Proverbs 27, verse 7. When you get there, please say amen. Amen. Anyone need mercy? All right, we're all there. Proverbs 27, verse 7. A satisfied soul loathes the what? The honeycomb. Now, we just read in Psalms that the law, the statutes, the judgments, all of the things are God are sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. But Solomon tells us that the satisfied soul loathes. That's not just is ambivalent towards. That's not just could take it or leave it. That is an intense hatred that they loathe the honeycomb. And what is it that makes them loathe the honeycomb? Their satisfaction. And therein lies the problem. The wealthy, worldly, and well-educated are satisfied. At least seemingly satisfied. And on a superficial level, they are satisfied. They have their three-car garage. They have their beautiful house. They have their nice vacations. They have all these things. They have status. They have power. They have glamour. They have these things. And so they're satisfied, at least on a surface level, with their lives. So what need do they have for God? And the Bible points this out directly. So there are four key stumbling blocks. I call them the four P's because... In business school, they tell you everything needs to have an acronym. And alliteration is preferred. So we have four P's here. And the examples are, the first P example is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Now, we're at Southern. So would it be safe for me to assume that we all understand and remember the story of the rich young ruler? 
or should I go through that? I'm okay to go through it. But in the interest of time, I'd like to keep moving. So the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do for eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done all this. What more do I lack? And Jesus said to do what? That's right. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And what did the rich young ruler do? He walked away very sorrowful for he had many great... Anyone remember that word? Possessions. And so the first P, the first stumbling block, are the possessions that the W3s have. And possessions aren't just physical possessions. That PhD degree could be a possession. That really plumb job with the corner office could be a possession. Uh, There are many things that become possessions and idols in our lives. And so the first P is possessions. The second P's, there are two P's that come with this one, King Herod. King Herod, when he was, uh, when he beheaded John the Baptist, do you remember that account? So Herod was having a party with all of his people around him, governors and hangers-on and people of status and wealth, all of his people. And he was throwing a party and he had his daughter come in and do a dance. And he was so delighted by her dance that he said, up to half the kingdom I will give you. Ask whatever you want. And so uh, she goes and consults with her mother and says, well, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so she comes back, she asks for that. Now, when Herod heard that request, how did he feel about it? Do you remember? Was he excited and happy to do that? He was not, right? He did want, not want to do that. In fact, he was, he, he wasn't, I wouldn't, he wouldn't, I wouldn't say he was a disciple of John the Baptist by any means, but he listened to him. The Bible actually tells us that he listened to John the Baptist, that he enjoyed hearing about uh, the things of God from John the Baptist. And so he was kind of a fan. And the only reason why John the Baptist was in prison was because John the Baptist talked straight and uh, Herodias said, well, he's got to pay the price. And so he was willing to put John the Baptist in prison, but he really didn't want to kill him. Yet, he killed him anyway. And the Bible tells us why. It says, uh, because of those who sat around him and because of the oaths that he had made. And so the next two Ps we have are your peers and prestige. He did not want to look stupid or weak in front of his peers. Do you see that? And so the W3s, they're surrounded by other W3s who all think in this worldly, secular way. And the idea that they would break away from that and follow the Lord, that's a tall order. It's a tall order. And it's a huge barrier in terms of peers and prestige. And the fourth P, whoops, is from King Agrippa. Does anyone remember King Agrippa? In the book of Acts, uh, Paul had an opportunity to share his testimony with King Agrippa. King Agrippa was actually a Jew. And so he shared his testimony with King Agrippa. And at the end, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe? 
I, I know you believe. I, I, I think you're a smart man. I think you get it. And King Agrippa says to him, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. You almost persuade me to be a Christian, which means that he did not persuade him to be a Christian. But the fact that it's almost, you almost get the sense that he feels like, I'm almost there, but give me a little more time. We can reconsider this at another date. And so the, the fourth P is procrastination. Procrastination. And I personally have shared uh, a series of Bible studies. I've gone through the entire messages with uh, people from this W3 segment through personal Bible studies. And I've had people say to me, this all makes sense, but at this time of my life, I'm still pursuing my career. I, I still want to do this. I want to go see that. I want to do these other things. And the life that the Bible, as you're teaching it to me, seems like it would cramp my style. So I think maybe at a future point, we can re-engage on this. We can come back and talk about this. But today, you almost persuade me, but not quite. And so the four Ps, the four stumbling blocks, are possessions, peers and prestige, and procrastination. Does that make sense to you guys? No? Any questions so far? We're good? All right. Now let's see what the spirit of prophecy has to say about this because oftentimes when we talk about missions and witnessing and sharing the gospel, there is a great focus on things like overseas missionaries. Go overseas, preferably to a third world country. Or inner cities. Go to the inner cities and meet their needs. There, there's a lot of emphasis on these kinds of things and rightfully so. I... I am very supportive and believe in all of these ministries. But what I'm here to share with you today is that there has been an oversight, an oversight on the end of, other end of the spectrum, which is this W3 segment. And as I started to do this research and do this study, it was astounding to me how much Spirit of Prophecy had to say on this. And so let's go through that. The Wardleberry vision. Does anyone know what a Wardleberry is? Anyone? No? I didn't know either. But apparently it's a fruit that uh, looks like a blueberry, but instead of being white inside, it's red. So there you go. Now you know what a whortleberry is. And so Ellen White has a vision in which she sees herself with a lot of other believers uh, going out of the cities into the outskirts of the city but still within that metro area. I, I would, it, when I read it, it almost felt like the suburbs, although I'm not sure suburbs were a concept back then. But going out, and they were going out to pick whortleberries. That was their activity that they were going to do. And she talks about how um, everyone was enjoying the day. It was a beautiful day. They were enjoying the weather and their, each other's company. There was a lot of talking, a lot of enjoyment and um, uh, conversation. And she talks about how uh, some of the people really worked hard at picking whortleberries and other people, not so much. They would just enjoy their picnic lunches and enjoy the sunshine. And so we pick it up there. This is uh, Ellen White. 
share uh, coming back to the to the party. So then I then took my berries and went to the wagon, the wagon that they had ridden. Said I, this is the nicest fruit that I've ever picked, and I gathered it close by, while you have wearied yourself by searching at a distance without success. Then all came to look at my fruit, said they. These are high bush berries, firm and good. We did not think we could find anything on the high bushes, so we hunted only for the low bush berries, and we have found only a few of these. Now, what does she mean by this, high bushes and low bushes and berries? Well, we don't have to guess because she interprets it for us. I am sure that the dreams that I have had of late teach me lessons that there is a neglect to get the better classes to become interested. While the poor classes are not to be neglected, neither should the higher and more intelligent classes be overlooked. I have been in dreams instructed that we overlook the fields close by to us to labor in faraway fields, and we pick very inferior berries when there are larger and a better quality of berries all ready to be gathered, and we are making a mistake in this kind of labor. Wow. That's pretty clear, is it not? She goes on. There has not been the effort made that there should have been to reach the higher classes. While we are to preach the gospel to the poor, we are also to present it in its most attractive light to those who have ability and talent and make far more wise, determined, God-fearing efforts than have hitherto been made to win them to the truth. Make far more wise, determined, God-fearing efforts than have hitherto been made. In other words, you guys have been slacking off. That's what she's saying. You guys have been ignoring this group. And W3s have always been a part of God's people. And I have a list here of, of some examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the list goes on, but I'd have to drop the font size and you wouldn't be able to read it. But they're up on this list are kings, governmental officials, uh, religious leaders, uh, wealthy men, all different kinds of W3s all throughout the Bible. So this is not a new concept. It's not a new concept to our society. We go on. W3s need to be shown the reality of God. There is a work to be done for the wealthy. They need to be awakened to their responsibility as those entrusted with the gifts of heaven. They need to be reminded that they must give an account to him who shall judge the living and the dead. The wealthy man needs your labor in the love and fear of God. Too often he trusts in his riches and feels not his danger. The eyes of his mind need to be attracted to things of enduring value. Very explicit. These, these comments, they really speak for themselves. And here is the point earlier about satisfaction. They appear to be satisfied, but actually we learn something else here. We talk and write much of the neglected poor. Should not some attention be given also to the neglected rich? Let's stop there for a second. This idea of neglected rich was, when, as I was doing this research, that just reached out and just hit me in the middle between the eyes. The neglected rich. Many look upon this class as hopeless. Does anyone look at this class and think that they're hopeless? Does anyone look at them and think, has anyone been canvassing? In this, who's, who's been canvassing here? Okay. You know, good, good number of folks. Now, I know some canvassing programs, they have different uh, labels for different neighborhoods. 
and maybe on a numerical scale. These go from one to 10. And the wealthy neighborhoods are what? Nines and tens? Is that kind of how it works? Seven, seven, to nine. seven to nine. Okay. So what's easier? Uh, one to threes or seven to nines? One to threes, right? The seven to nines, one, they're not home because they're busy. Two, if you can get them, they don't want to talk to you because they're busy. And they're also highly skeptical. They're highly skeptical. They're like, what do you want? Why are you here? In fact, anyone who's walking instead of driving is highly suspect. (laughs) So we look upon, this class is hopeless, Thousands of wealthy men have gone to their graves unwarned, unwarned, because they have been judged by appearance and passed by as hopeless subjects, but as indifferent as they may appear, I have been shown that most of this class are soul burdened. There are thousands of rich men who are starving for spiritual food. Many in official life feel their need of something which they have not. Few among them go to church for they feel they receive no benefit. The teaching they hear does not touch the soul. Should we make no personal effort on their behalf? It's as plain as day. I'd like to share a couple anecdotes with you. I was talking with a a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school who grew up in China. Uh, She's a colleague of mine at work. And once we got involved in a conversation about uh, spiritual things, and I asked her if she had any uh, spiritual belief, and uh, she said she was an atheist. And I asked her, well, why are you an atheist? And she said, well, one, uh, I grew up in China, and there's no religion there, or at least no sanctioned religion there, and so it's just not been a part of my culture. And two, I'm a scientist. I'm a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school. And... You know, scientists, I mean, we don't believe in mythology like religion. So and that, that seemed pretty typical. I expected those answers. But I kept listening. And she said something completely unexpected. She said, but I often wish that there were a God. This is an atheist, PhD in physics from an Ivy League school. I said, well, why do, you, why do you wish that? See, I didn't have to do anything. We're going to get into the witnessing part this afternoon. I didn't do that. She volunteered that in response to a question, which was, why are you an atheist? And she gave me two reasons. One, I'm a physicist. I see how finely calibrated the universe is. And it is extremely hard to explain that without some higher power. This is a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school who's telling me, I'm not telling her this, she's telling me how difficult it is to explain the universe without God. That was the first reason. And the second reason was, If there were a God, she wouldn't feel so lonely. She was soul burdened. She was soul burdened. Let me tell you about another woman. She is someone who I went to school with uh, at the Eastman School of Music. She's a very talented violinist. She has her bachelor's from Yale, her master's 
from Eastman and her PhD from Juilliard. So she, she, she can play. <laughs> very talented, very talented woman. And I had, I had the opportunity to go to Chicago for a business trip and she lives in Chicago now. So I think it's been probably 15 years or more since I had seen her, but I said, hey, let's get together and, and have dinner. And so, so we got together and had dinner. We're just talking and, and I was, we got onto spiritual topics uh, over the course of dinner. And as you'll learn this afternoon, it's, it's, not an, it's not an accident. There's a way of getting into spiritual topics that is purposeful. So we got into spiritual topics over dinner. And uh, we started talking about religion and I asked what she does and, and things like that. And she, she proceeded to tell me about her upbringing and how confused she was about things of God and things of religion because her, her house was divided and ultimately they really didn't have religion in the house. And she, and she expressed to me that despite this confusion, that she did not want that confusion for her children and that she would like to know. And then she proceeded to tell me at one point, there, there seemed to be so many good things about having a belief in God. For example, David, you know how the Jews set aside an entire day to just rest and focus on the things of God? That is such a beautiful concept. I didn't tell her that. She told me that. She told me that, and I don't even know that she knew that. I, in fact, I'm sure, I'm sure she did not know I was a Seventh-day Adventist. She presented that truth to me as a completely novel and powerful way of looking at the world. And of course, I followed that comment up by saying, oh, well, you know, by the way, <laughs> there are Christians who also observe that. But this is a... Yale, Eastman, Juilliard educated person telling me that the Sabbath is a beautiful thing. A third example. I was on a flight, uh, transcon from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, and I had the good fortune of being in first class. So I was sitting next to an older gentleman, and he was flying out to, it was from, uh, like I said, we're going to LA. And we just had a little chit chat. What do you do? And as it turns out, he's a psychotherapist. And I said, well, what, what do you, you know, where's your practice? And he said, Hollywood. Now, can you imagine being a psychotherapist in Hollywood? <laughs> what kind of practice that must be? And so at some point of the conversation, I said to him, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not in your business, or in your industry, in your field, but I've heard, I've heard it said that having a belief in God can actually be beneficial to the psychological state of people. What is your professional opinion about that? And he said, I agree. I said, oh, really? Well, why do you agree? And he said, well, I'm an atheist. He, he's an atheist. He's an atheist, but he agrees. And I said, well, why do you, especially as an atheist, why would you agree? And he said, he stopped to think for a moment, because I don't think he, anyone had ever asked him that question. What are the benefits of belief in God, psychologically speaking? And he said, after a little bit of thought, he said, well, for example, if you believe in God, you're never alone. You can always check in with him. 
But if you don't, unless you're with someone else, you're always alone. These people are soul burdened. And this is not me and my brilliant, wonderful anecdotes illustrating this to you. This has been in our church for over a hundred years. Now, she goes on to say, not only should we be doing this, but we should prioritize it. Those who belong to the higher ranks of society are to be sought out with tender affection and brotherly regard. Men in business life, in high positions of trust, men with large inventive faculties and scientific insight, men of genius, teachers of the gospel whose minds have not yet been called to the special truths for this time. That means our other Christian brothers and sisters. These should be the first to hear the call. To them, the invitation must be given. They should be the first. Not even equal. She didn't say, we should equally wait ministering to the lower classes and the higher classes. She said, they should be first. Now, why is that? Well, she's got some pretty good reasons for it. The Lord desires that the moneyed men should be converted and act as his helping hand in reaching others. He desires that those who can help in the work of reform and restoration shall see the precious light of truth and be transformed in character and led to use their entrusted capital, their wealth, in his service. He would have them invest the means that he has lent them in doing good, in opening the way for the gospel to be preached to all classes, nigh and afar off. There are very practical reasons why they should be first, because they have means to support the work, to reach everybody else. She goes on. Altogether little effort, altogether too little effort has been put forth for men in responsible places in the world. Many of them possess superior qualifications. They have means and influence. These are precious gifts entrusted to them by the Lord to be increased and used for the good of others. Seek to save men of wealth and treat them to return to the Lord the treasures he has lent them in trust, that in, the new, that in New York and other great cities there may be established centers of influence from which the Bible truth in its simplicity shall go forth to the people. Persuade men to lay up their treasures beside the throne of God by returning to the Lord their substance, enabling his workers to do good and to advance his glory. Very practical reasons. And it goes beyond just their means. The greatest men of this earth are not beyond the power of a wonder-working God. God will convert men who occupy responsible positions, men of intellect and influence. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, many will accept the divine principles. Converted to the truth, they will become agencies in the hand of God to communicate the light. They will have a special burden for other souls of this neglected class. Time and money will be concentrated to the work, consecrated to the work of the Lord, and new efficiency and power will be added to the, tr- uh, to the church. And this statement here, they will have a special burden for other souls of this neglected class. That is the situation that I find myself in. And I hope by the time we're done with this, you will also find yourself in that. She goes on to talk about how powerful this effect would be. Mistakes have been made in not seeking to reach ministers and, other higher, and the higher classes with the truth. A fund should be raised to educate men and women to labor for these higher classes. God wants men of talent and good minds who can weigh arguments, men who will dig for the truth as for hid treasures. These men will be able to reach not only the common, 
but the better classes. Such men will ever be students of the Bible, fully alive to the sacredness of their responsibilities resting upon them. They will give full proof of their ministry. So she's saying these people have talents, not only means, but also talents, and that these talents will not only reach other W3s, but also reach the common, and that their resources can be spread for the overall work of God. Think about the wealthy in our world. Think about the, the Warren Buffetts, the Bill Gates, and the Forbes 400 and those kinds of people. If you took Bill Gates, who I think is still the richest man in the world, and you assumed a tithe off his net worth, you could operate the world church for years without a single new dollar of offering or tithe coming in. We're talking billions of dollars in the pockets of the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And even if you're not Bill Gates, which, uh, you know, I'm certainly not Bill Gates, but if you, if, if you are, um, you know, any sort of person in this upper level, you know, six-figure income type of thing, and I know many of you are students, but certainly you aspire, some of you may aspire towards career tracks that might put you in this category, your faithful stewardship over a lifetime will be millions of dollars. And so this is really important. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Do you think that Bill Gates' work of charity, which is enormous, would be better if you were a Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> Let him think about that. <laughs> I, 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 my guess is that, I, as far as I'm, so I, I don't, haven't studied the Gates Foundation, so I don't know all of the initiatives that they have. They it seems that they're doing wonderful things. If anything, my hope would be that it would be even magnified and amplified if he uh, were a Seventh-day Adventist and fully committed. And certainly some of that funny, uh, uh, funding, money, talent would also be going to the spread of the gospel and um, adding the spiritual dimension to the humanitarian dimension that he's pursuing. So in that respect, it would be better. Thank you for the question. Any other questions? Okay, we'll keep going. Now we get to the challenge, worldliness. So today God is seeking for souls among the high as well as the low. There are many like Cornelius, men whom he desires to connect with his church. Their sympathies are with the Lord's people, but the ties that bind them to the world hold them firmly. It requires moral courage for these men to take their position with the lowly ones. Special effort should be made for these souls who are in so great danger because of their responsibilities and their associations. Again, highlighting the challenge and again, highlighting they need special effort. They need special effort. And that a lot of the efforts that we've made to date have not been focused on them and are ineffectual. And their worldliness, their apparent worldliness, should not deter us. We, we just read that they are soul burdened, and here's more on that. Those who stand high in the world for their education, wealth, or calling are seldom addressed personally in regard to their interests of the soul. Many Christian workers hesitate to approach these classes. We just talked about that. But this should not be. If a man were drowning, we would not stand by and see him perish because he was a lawyer, a merchant, or a judge. Right? It's very true. 
If we saw persons rushing over a precipice, we would not hesitate to urge them back, whatever might be their position or calling. Neither should we hesitate to warn men of the peril of their soul. None should be neglected because of their apparent devotion to worldly things. I'll share another uh, anecdote with you. There was a gentleman, a colleague of mine at work, uh, very accomplished, uh, went to a top business school, worked for a top consulting firm, uh, and, and now he had joined uh, Vanguard where I work. And Vanguard is a, is a very special place in many ways, but it can be a very difficult place for people to enter mid-career because the way we do things at Vanguard can be very different from, it's not your typical Wall Street firm not by any stretch of the imagination. So he had been having some challenges with how to navigate the culture and the organization. And since I came from a similar background as him, I decided I would invite him to lunch and just to check in and see how things are going. So we were having lunch and he asked me, so David, you, you are from a similar background as me. How have you been able to navigate and be successful at, at Vanguard? And I gave him a couple pieces of advice, you know, be a good listener, you know, things like that, things which are sort of standard and typical. But then the third thing I said to him is, I don't know how you feel about these things, but it would be remiss of me if I didn't share with you what I think has been the most helpful as I've tried to navigate this place, and that is my prayer life. I had no idea of his religious background, if he had any belief whatsoever. But I just put it out there. I said, the third thing I'll mention, and frankly, this is the most, uh, most helpful, powerful one in my life, is my prayer life. And I recognize, I don't know how you feel about this kind of stuff, but I'm just telling you, you asked me the question, so I'm going to give you my answer. And he said to me, wow, tell me more about that. So I talked about it, and, I talk, and we're going to talk about that this afternoon as well. Um, and then at some point, I, I turned the question back to him. Well, do you have any sort of religious background? And he said, well, actually, I'm an atheist. A lot of atheists running around, especially amongst the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. Atheism is big. Buddhism is big. New Age is big. A lot of these things are very big. He's an atheist. But, he says, I'm an atheist, but what you have, I need. And I've been doing personal, having personal Bible studies with him for the last two years. None should be neglected because of their apparent devotion, apparent devotion to worldly things. Now, how do you do this? Well, Spirit of Prophecy tells us they need a different approach. The intelligent, the refined, are altogether too much passed by. Pay attention here. The hook is not baited to catch this class. What a metaphor. The hook, fishing, right? The hook is not baited to catch this class. And ways and methods are not prayerfully devised to reach them with the truth that is able to make them wise unto salvation. She's saying the hook's not baited for them and we don't have the methods available to us right now. We need to develop these methods. What a rebuke. More, most generally... The fashionable, the wealthy, the proud understand by experience that happiness is not to be secured by the amount of money that they possess or by costly edifices or ornamental furniture and pictures. 
They want something they have not. She's saying they know that money is not, money doesn't buy you happiness as the cliche goes. It's cliche because people actually in their heart of hearts believe it. But this class are attracted towards each other and it is hard to find access to them. The rich left alone without any effort to save them become shut up more and more to their own ideas, their own train of thoughts, and associations lose eternity out of their reckoning. They grow more proud and selfish, hard-hearted and unimpressible, suspicious that everyone wants to get money. She's speaking to a really important issue here, and that is of access. Going back to our brave coal porters, it's hard to get access to these people. And even if you get, if, even if you get one to open the door, they don't view you as someone who they should frankly be listening to because they view their peers as people they should be listening to. People who have similar backgrounds, similar mindsets, similar education, all of these kinds of things. And so it is critical, and you'll hear this over and over today, it is critical that those of us in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who are committed to the spread of the everlasting gospel, it is critical that we who have access and potentially have access to the W3 segment be the ones to bring the message to them. Because access is a huge issue. It is hard to find access to them because they congregate with their own kind. And so in a way, you need to become one of them so that you can be in that circle. But you're there not for just the pleasures of life, but you're there as a missionary. People have often asked me, David, why don't you become a pastor? Why don't you become, why don't you go into the ministry? And while I, I understand where that question comes from and I, I appreciate that, in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking to myself, do you know what you're asking me? Because you're asking me to leave my mission field. You're ask, it's like asking someone who's a missionary to China, who's dedicated their life work to China and the Chinese people. Why don't you leave China? Really, the question is, why would you ask me that question? My mission field is corporate America. You've seen that this is a large mission field. It's the size of the entire UK or France or Italy. Now, I'm not saying that if the Lord were to call me out to do something else, that of course, I mean, he's the boss. But when, when, when people ask, why would you, when, when people ask me that question, I don't think they realize. Now, I could be in corporate America for my own aggrandizement, my own accumulation. And that's frankly how I was until about six years ago, which you'll hear about. But now I'm there as a missionary. I'm there as a Bible worker. The only difference is that God uses Vanguard to pay me. <laughs> so everybody wins. And so we need access. And the only way to be ac get access, it's almost like you're a secret agent. You're a secret agent. Some will ask, can we not reach them with publications? I believe in GLOW, I believe in the literature ministry. But we're talking about a different segment. 
There are many who cannot be reached this way. She just answers the question. Handing someone a glow track in this segment, it might work. I mean, there's, you, you always hear those testimonies, right? You always hear those incredible testimonies. But let's think about this. When we hear those amazing testimonies, why is it that they are amazing? Because it almost never happens. Are you following? The reason why those amazing testimonies are amazing is because it almost never happens. And that's what Spirit of Prophecy is telling us here. There are many who cannot be reached that way. It is personal effort. You can't just do a hit and run glow track with a W3 and expect a high percentage of results. Even if you do personal effort with them, you can't expect a high percentage of results. This is the hardest segment to reach. It is by no casual, accidental touch that the wealthy, world-loving, world-worshipping souls can be drawn to Christ. These persons are often the most difficult of access. Personal effort must be put forth for them by men and women imbued with the missionary spirit who will not fail or be discouraged. In every effort to reach the higher classes, the worker for God needs strong faith. Appearances may seem forbidding, but in the darkest hour there is light above. I'm not going to stand before you and tell you that I've had dozens of baptisms amongst the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. I've had a, a reasonable number of Bible studies, and I've had hundreds of spiritual conversations. But this is the hardest group to reach. The deck is stacked against us, yet we are enjoined by the Bible and spirit of prophecy that we must do this work. And it has been neglected has been neglected. So how do you do this? In order to do this, all workers will have to keep themselves up to a high level of intelligence. They cannot do this work and sink down to a low common level, feeling that it does not much matter how they labor or what they say, since they're working for the poor and ignorant classes. Did that touch an ouchy spot for anybody? Think about the thing in your life that you pay the most attention to, that you have the most focus on, the thing that is your passion. It might be your studies, it might be a sport, it might be some other hobby that you have. So think about that thing. You got, you got something in your head now? That thing in your life that you accord the most passion towards? Do you have it? Okay, I'm going to give you 30 more seconds to think of something. Do you have something in your mind? Or do you have no passions? <laughs> do you have something in your mind? Amen? Amen? Think about that thing. Now, think about how your attention and en energy and effort towards working at the church or for God compares to that thing. And it could be as big as going out to a missionary field or it can be as small as doing leading the praise singing. Setting up the chairs for potluck. Things big and small of God. How much attention and diligence do you pay to those things versus the things that you are most passionate about in your life? We cannot do this work and sink down to a low common level. They will have to sharpen up and be armed and equipped in order to present the truth intelligently and to reach the higher classes. Their minds must rise higher and show greater strength and clearness. This is a difficult work and it requires your best efforts. Enabled by God.
Some are uniquely qualified. Some are specially fitted to work for the higher classes. They should seek wisdom from God to know how to reach these persons. To not have merely a casual acquaintance with them, but by personal effort and living faith. That's an important one. Living faith to awaken them to the needs of the soul, to lead them to the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. In order to reach these classes, believers themselves must be living epistles known and read of all men. We'll talk more about this this afternoon, but you need to be living the message. You need to be living the message before you're even thinking about sharing the message. And we'll talk more about that because we're running out of time. Then she, she rebukes us once more. There are intelligent men and women whom we are afraid to work for, fearing repulse. We're afraid to work for them because our feelings might get hurt. But earnest effort should be made for the higher classes coming close to their hearts, visiting them and using special wisdom to win them to the truth. There should be no pushing. Here's really important. We're going to talk about this afternoon. There should be no pushing, no sharp contention, but leading their minds out to investigate. One reason why efforts have not heretofore been made for the higher classes as I have presented before you is a lack of faith and real courage in God. As I go around talking to people about this ministry, Oftentimes, people will say how intimidated they are, how they're afraid to talk to these people. And she tells us one reason for that is a lack of faith. And I want to leave you with this thought, which is just incredibly powerful to, to me. It requires more grace, more stern discipline of character to work for God in the capacity of mechanic, merchant, lawyer, or farmer carrying the precepts of Christianity into the ordinary business of life, then to labor as an acknowledged missionary in the open field. It requires a strong spiritual nerve to bring religion into the workshop and the business office, sanctifying the details of everyday life and ordering every transaction according to the standard of God's word. But this is what the Lord requires. What is she saying here? She's saying it is harder to be a layperson working in the office or in the shop and bringing Christ into that place than it is to be an explicitly open missionary or Bible worker. And I have total respect for those who go into the missionary field in those respects. You know, we often talk about, uh, we go back to our coal porters. It is hard work in the summertime. When it's going up above 90, 100 degrees sometimes, and you're out there with that bag, no doubt about it. But she's saying it's harder for me to sit in my air-conditioned office and bring Christ there than it is to be an open, explicit mission Bible worker in the field. And I'd include pastors, conference workers, missionaries. Now, what I will say is this. We often think about harder in terms of material hardship. And that's why we talk about things the way we do. And it's very reasonable. I I would agree. From a material hardship perspective, no doubt, carrying that bag around in August, way more difficult. Don't get me wrong. But what she's talking about here is the spiritual strength you need to have. The, The spiritual backbone you need to have to walk into the CEO's office and bring Jesus there. And she's saying that is more difficult than to be an avowed, open gospel worker. 
And so we're going to wrap up now, but the question I want you to take with you is, will you take up this challenge? I think anyone here who's at Southern, you're already well-educated. Those of us here who are in professions, you're well-educated, and maybe you're wealthy too. And although we don't want to be worldly, we certainly live in a worldly place. We have access. We have ability. If only we will allow God to use us. And so my question to you this morning is, will you take up this challenge? And with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, you have enjoined upon us, you have admonished us to do this work for the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. Lord, we as a church and we as individuals have been negligent in doing this work because we lack faith, because we're afraid, because we have not put the time in to arm and equip ourselves. But Lord, I pray that someone in this room, having heard this admonishment, will take it upon themselves to become equipped, to have that spiritual strength, to take it into wherever sphere of influence you, you bring them. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would deeply impress this message and that there would be workers for the neglected rich. Lord, we're just scratching the surface and we pray for your continued presence among us as we move into the worship and into the afternoon. We pray this in the powerful and holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.